find it. You did everything except turn on the mic. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So last week we covered Surah Al-Nas and alhamdulillah we finished from uh, Surah Al-Nas. So that's one down, 113 to go. And uh, this week inshallah we begin with uh, Surah Al-Falaq. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل أعوذ برب الفلق من شر ما خلق ومن شر غاسق إذا وقب ومن شر النفاثات في العقد ومن شر حاسد إذا حسد Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Say, I seek refuge with the Lord of the daybreak against the harm in what he has created, and the harm in the night when darkness gathers, and the harm in witches when they blow on knots, and the harm in the envier when he envies. So this surah um, is going to be slightly different from the surah that we covered before Surah Al-Nas. In the sense that Surah Al-Falaq is really the first surah as we're going through the tafsir of the Qur'an from, you know, in reverse order from the end to the beginning, where we have a number of words in which the opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir, the classical scholars of tafsir, you will have various interpretations, various opinions, um, and various sayings concerning what these words of the surah uh, refer to. And that's very common. So Surah Nas was kind of like the exception in the sense that it was very easy to understand. There weren't really many words that we found very difficult to, to go over and so on. But in Surah Al-Falaq, it is somewhat different. So for example, words like Nafathat, Ghasiq, Waqab, these are terms, Falaq, these are terms which um, you'll find a, an array of opinions and an array of different views amongst the classical scholars of Tafsir as to what they precisely refer to and what they mean. And because of that being the case, and that is actually something very common in the books of Tafsir, so any of you that have gone back to, for example, Ibn Kathir, uh, his Tafsir, for example, even in the English version, the translated <coughs> version, which is a translation of the abridged version of Ibn Kathir, one thing that you will find is Ibn Kathir will sometimes, when he comes across a verse, mention to you many, many different opinions. So-and-so said, and this companion said, and that companion said, and this scholar said, and that scholar said, and sometimes he'll give you three, four, five, six, seven different views concerning a single word of the Qur'an or a single verse of the Qur'an. And when you don't really understand the methodology of the scholars of tafsir and how the scholars of tafsir approach tafsir, especially classical scholars of tafsir, and the uh, companions in their approach and the students, the tabi'een and the old scholars in their approach to tafsir, it can sometimes be very confusing. Because the whole idea of tafsir is to what? Is to explain the Qur'an, right? Make it easier to understand. Bring it closer to us rather than make it more difficult to understand and more confusing. But if you don't understand the methodology of the classical scholars of tafsir and the way that they approach tafsir, often you'll find that you'll come away more confused as opposed to less confused. Right? And for that reason, one of the things that we're going to do before we um, go on to the first verse of Surah Al-Falaq is I want to just take a few minutes, inshallah, and go through some basic usul al-tafsir, some basic principles of tafsir. And this is a whole science in itself. So like in fiqh, fiqh which is like the practical rulings of the sharia, the do's and the don'ts, you have usul al-fiqh, which is the principles of fiqh, and those are the principles that govern the science of fiqh. They tell you how to do your fiqh. Right? They tell you how to reach your conclusion and reach the rulings of the sharia. You have the science of hadith, which is obviously the collections of the sayings and the statements and the approvals of the Prophet ﷺ and so on. 
And then you have mustalah al-hadith, the science of hadith, which tells you how to approach hadith, how to understand the chain of narration, how to understand the body of text, how to understand different narrators. All of those issues are contained within a set science. Tafsir is very much the same. So you have the science of tafsir, and tafsir is basically the explanation of the words and the meanings of the Qur'an. And then you have usul al-tafsir, which means the principles of tafsir. And they basically govern the science of tafsir. They tell you how to understand tafsir. Right? And what the scholars would do in all of these sciences, be it usul al-fiqh, be it mustalah al-hadith, be it um, you know, usul al-tafsir, Scholars, once tafsir, because tafsir began from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and the time of the companions, radiyallahu anhumajma'een, and, and their students, the tabi'een, rahimahumullah, the, the old generations of Muslims, the first generation of Muslims, were engaged in tafsir. But then when it became difficult for people to understand their approach, scholars set up another science called usul al-tafsir. Just as in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, we had fiqh, right? The Prophet ﷺ told us our rulings. He told us how to pray and not to pray and how to make wudu and not to make wudu. All of those issues are mentioned in the sharia. But then when people found it difficult 100, 150, 200 years later to understand how those rulings were reached and how to go about approaching that decision-making process of how to derive those rulings from the sharia, the scholars like Imam al-Shafi'i in Usul al-Fiqh and others, they had to come and write down and, if you like, um, you know, categorize the science so that it would be easier for people who come afterwards to understand how to make fiqh. Right? And likewise, it's the same with Usul al-Tafsir. So we're not going to go through the whole of Usul al-Tafsir because, as we said, it's a science in and of itself. But the point that I want to bring to our attention today, and it's something that I want us to remember as we go forward, is how to understand differences of opinion in tafsir. How to understand the different statements of the scholars of tafsir. And the way that we understand that is that the varying opinions of tafsir fall into two broad categories. And uh, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he has a book on this called The Principles of Usul al-Tafsir. Uh, which is translated in the English language, and I know that because I translated it, um, and it's also with the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Thaymin, rahimahullah. It's a, not an easy text to follow, I would say, but it's like one of the few that we have in the English language. It's called an introduction to the principles of tafsir. But Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, with the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin, rahimahullah. But that's like a well-known book in this, in this, um, you know, in this uh, science. Uh, and Imam al-Shatibi rahimahullah in al-Muwafaqat al-Muwafaqat is like a five, six volume compendium on usul al-fiqh and, and, uh, and uh, maqasid and so on he also goes through some of these points on usul al-tafsir but that's something which isn't to the best of my knowledge translated into the English language the point is that when the scholars speak about this right, so when you come across a verse and you find Ibn Abbas said something Ibn Mas'ud said something Abu Huraira said something, Mujahid said something, Al-Hassan said something, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib said something, Qatada said something. You have all of these names, all of them from the generation of the companions or their students, and what it seems to be is that each and every single one of them is saying something completely different. Completely different. Every one of them seems to have a different opinion. So me and you, when we come to read the books of Tafsir, how do we understand that difference of opinion? Does it include all of those opinions? Do we have to choose or some stronger, some weaker? How does it work? So Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, Imam al-Shatibi, others, they said that the, these differences of opinion or these varying opinions rather, they fall into two broad categories. The first is the difference of contradiction. A difference of contradiction, meaning what? Meaning that the opinions of these scholars contradict one another, like you have in fiqh. Right? Sometimes you can combine and reconcile between fiqh opinions and sometimes there's just no hope. Right? They are completely you know, south and north, right? east and west. There's no way of bringing them together. Likewise, it's the same in tafsir. Sometimes you have opposing opinions. Right? One scholar went to one opinion, another scholar went to a different opinion. It is two different opinions and you must choose one over the other. However, this in tafsir is the minority. It's the minority. 
Unlike, for example, in fiqh, where it's very common, right? In many, many masail, in fact, the masail or the issues of fiqh in which the scholars have all agreed unanimously, the scholars of ijma' are very few, right? They go into a very small book. Scholars have written on the issues of ijma' and it's a very, very small book. 100 pages, 150 pages, all of fiqh, only those issues they have agreed upon. And then you have volumes upon volumes upon volumes of issues that they differed over, differences of opinion. Right. Whereas in tafsir it is the opposite And perhaps Allah Azza wa knows best Maybe that's from the miracles of the Quran And from the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Has preserved the Quran That the majority of the difference of opinion in Quran Or the varying opinions that you read Are not contradiction They fall in the second category What is the second category? A difference of expression The second category is fr- frankly just a difference of verbalizing their different opinions. They all say the same thing, but they just express them in different ways. Right? They express them in different ways. That is the majority in the works of fiqh. And if you read in the classical like books of tafsir and, and, and so on, you'll find that many of the scholars alluded to this. Ishaq ibn Rahawi, rahimahullah, was one of the old scholars of hadith and, and tafsir and so on. He said that this is very common in the Qur'an. Very common. That when the companions used to differ in tafsir, their difference is a difference of expression, not a difference of contradiction. Meaning that they're speaking about the same thing, it's just that they're speaking and expressing themselves in different ways. Right? So for example, you know, if I was to say to you, describe this masjid for me. Right? Some of us would describe it by its size, others maybe by its location, Others maybe by you know the decor, others maybe by the name, right? But we're all speaking about the same thing. We're all speaking about this masjid. It's just that we've chosen to focus on different things. So we're not contradicting one another. We're just simply expressing our views in different ways, right? And that is the difference between the two. <coughs> so, for example, in the Quran, Sufyan ibn Uyayna rahimahullah is also one of the early scholars of Islam. He gave an example of this, right? And this is to show you that even at the beginning of Islam, in the early generations, when we're talking about the first three generations of Muslims, they understood this concept that when the scholars differ, or the companions differed over the tafsir, it was a difference of expression. So, for example, ibn Uyayna rahimahullah, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, he said that when we have the the, the verse that we spoke about last week, right, when we were speaking about Minsharil Waswas al Khannas, and we said that Al Khannas means what? It means to retreat. Right? Retreat. And then I gave you another example in the Quran where Allah Azza wa uses the same root word of Khannas in Surah Al Taqweer, Fala Uksimubil Khunnas. Right? That Allah takes an oath by the Khunnas. And we said that there are Two different, uh, two different opinions as to what khunnas means. Some of the companions, they said, like Abdullah bin Mas'ud, he said that it refers to animals, wild animals. And others from the companions, like Ali radiallahu an, an, anhu and others said that it refers to the stars. Right? Ibn Uyayna rahimahullah said that both of them are speaking about the same thing. Even though apparently, like, you know, they seem like East and West, right? One speaking about animals, one speaking about the stars, right? One's in the skies, one's on earth. But actually, in reality, they speak about the same thing. Why? Because the word khunnas means to hide and retreat. So wild animals or some wild animals, when you approach them, they run away and they flee, right? Or if they hear you approaching, they flee and they retreat to their dens and their holes and so on. And likewise, the stars, when daylight comes, it also retreats. Right? Darkness retreats, the stars retreat, they're there, they haven't vanished, it's just that they're not visible to our plain eyes. And so he said, therefore, both of them are speaking about the same thing, they just express themselves differently. Right? And that's something which is important to understand in the way that the scholars approach tafsir. And that's why Ishaq ibn rahimahullah said, and the reason why people think that the differences of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir our actual differences of opinion is because of ignorance of the methodology of the scholars of tafsir. It's because they don't know, right? And so we take things at face value. We read, for example, Ibn Kathir, 
or you know, around any tafsir, Qurtubi, Tabari, any of those classical works of tafsir, where someone's going into detail and we see all of those different opinions, and we just take them at face value, right? And then we become more confused. And the amount of times people have asked me this question, especially because I teach Quran courses and so on, people come and say, you know, Sheikh, I've read the tafsir of this verse, but I had six different opinions. Which one do I choose? And they fail to realize that all of them are speaking about the same thing. And we'll give some examples of this. And that's why Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah, was also from the students of the companions. He said that the reason why people get confused because of this is because of a lack of understanding the Arabic language. Right? That's what he put it down to. When people came into Islam and they didn't know the Arabic language and they weren't able to understand the methodology of the Arabs and the way that the Arabs used to express themselves and the way that they would speak, they found it difficult to understand why the companions expressed themselves in different ways. Right? And remember, the companions, you know, each one of them is a scholar in their own right, and they're you know, major figures and so on. It's not necessarily the case where each and every single one of them will be 100% in their words and their statements with the next one. Right? Ibn Abbas isn't going to clone the words of Ibn Mas'ud, and Ali, and Abu Huraira, and Aisha, and the other companions. And likewise, their students, Mujahid, won't say exactly what Qatada said, and what Hassan said, and all of those scholars. Right? So each one of them expresses something in their own way, using their own words, their own expressions, but in essence, they mean, they, they mean the same thing. So, um, Imam al-Shatibi, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, others, they gave examples of this. Right? Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he said that this falls into four categories. The differences that you find in the scholars of tafsir, they are in four categories, right? The difference, and we're talking about the second category. So the difference of contradiction, that's a separate thing, right? Sometimes they do differ, and you have to choose one over the other, right? And that's based upon other evidences from the sunnah, from the Quran, whatever you choose, one opinion from amongst the opinions of tafsir. We're speaking about the second category, which is the difference of expression, that category can further be subcategorized into four. Right? And this is what you'll find when you practically read the books of tafsir. They fall under one of these four, and Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he mentions them. The first one, the first subcategory is the expression of one and the same idea using different words. So they're referring to the same thing, but they're just using different words. The expression of one and the same idea using different words. For example... Right, Ibn Taymiyyah mentions this, Shatibi and so on. And I'm not just going to keep going and referring to that um, over and over again. Um, but the, the example that they give for this, for example, is in Surah Fatiha. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Guide us to the straight path. What is the straight path? What is the straight path? Quran. That's one opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. Sunnah, following the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's another opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. Anyone else? Okay, the ways of the anbiya, the prophets, Islam. Right, that's something else that some of the scholars of tafsir said. Right. So you have some scholars said Quran, some scholars said the Prophet sallam, some scholars said Islam, and Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah says actually they're all the same thing. Right, aren't they? So Islam is the Qur'an and is following the Prophet wasallam, and you can't follow the Qur'an except by following the Sunnah and vice versa and so on. And one of them are basically the same thing. So when one companion said Qur'an or one scholar said is following the Sunnah or one scholar said is Islam, they didn't mean three different things. They meant the same thing. But they just expressed themselves in different ways. Right? And that's why it's important when you're reading works of tafsir, books of tafsir, that you have to come and you stop and you think, right? Are they actually contradicting one another or are they actually speaking about the same thing? Right? And we'll give examples of this. And as we go through, inshallah, our lessons of tafsir and we find these differences of you know, varying statements amongst the scholars of tafsir as to what something means, this is something that I want us to think about together and something that we need to approach as well, right? Another one, for example, is salwa in the Qur'an, right? The word salwa from the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal and the bounties that Allah gave to the children of Israel, He says that He gave to them al-man was-salwa. Right? Salwa is a type of food. What is it? What type of food? You'll find various opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir. All of them come back to one essence, and that is that it is the meat of a bird. 
But where they will differ is what bird? This bird, that bird, whatever. I don't even know the species of these birds, especially in English, let alone in Arabic. But anyway, so when you come through all of these different birds and the meat of those birds, they're actually referring to one and the same thing. And that is that it's referring to bird. Right? It's referring to a bird. As to the specifics, they differed over this. Right? So these are examples of this first subcategory. And this is like a lot in the work of Tafsir, in the books of Tafsir. This is something which you will find over and over and over again. And it is something which is very, very common. Okay. The second subcategory is to give an example of the meaning rather than a solid definition. So rather than defining the tafsir of the word by giving a definition, rather than explaining the tafsir of the word by giving definition, they would just give you an example. An example so that you would just simply understand. So for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Takathur in the last verse, ثُمَّ لَتُسْأَلُنَّ يَوْمَ إِذٍ عَنِ النَّعِيمِ And then on that day, meaning on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, you will be asked about the blessings. Right? On Yawm Al-Qiyamah, you will be questioned by Allah and you will be asked about the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to you. What does that mean? What are the blessings that Allah is referring to? Some of the scholars said it is security, safety. Other scholars said it is good health. Other scholars said it is food and drink. Other scholars said it's the fact that the sharia has been made easy to follow and to abide by and so on and so forth. Right? And so all of this is basically referring to the same thing. They're speaking about examples of blessing. They're not defining the word blessing. What are they doing? They're giving us examples of the word. Right? Just to make it easier for us to understand. Right? So that's the second subcategory. That the scholars, rather than define, they would give you examples. The third one is that the word itself in the Arabic language doesn't have one meaning. has multiple meanings. It is an ambiguous word. And therefore, the scholars interpreted that word by all of the meanings that that word entails. By two meanings or three meanings if the word carries more than one meaning. Right? And an example of this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Takweer, verse number 17, وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا عَسْعَسِ Allah takes an oath by the night and then He describes it when it as'as. What does as'as mean? As'as can mean both two things in the Arabic language. It can mean when the night begins or when the night ends. When the night begins or when the night ends. So Allah is taking an oath by the night by either its beginning or by its end. And the Arabic word encompasses both. Again, that's not a contradiction. Because whether it's at the beginning of the night or the end of the night, the, the fact is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still taking an oath by the night. Right? And perhaps one of the ways to reconcile with the, one of the ways that the scholars do is that therefore it means the whole night, the entire night. Right? The beginning and the end are the two points, the starting point, the ending point. And therefore Allah is taking an oath by all of the night from the beginning to its end. Another example of this is in Surah Al-Muddathir, verse number 51. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Farrat min qaswara. They flee from the predator. As if they are fleeing from the predator. What is the predator? Right? So some scholars said it is a hunter. Other scholars said it's a lion. Other scholars said it's a tiger. Other scholars said anything that hunts, right? Any type of predator, whether it's like you know an animal or bird, any type of predator, anything with claws and fangs. Again, it doesn't you know, it's not, it's not a contradiction, right? Because the word hunter or predator can refer to more than one, right? It can refer to all of them. So again, the Arabic word allows for multiple meanings, right? And all of those meanings are correct in the context of the verse, and therefore, it is something which the scholars of Tafsir don't consider to be a contradiction. And the fourth and final one is that they use similar words, Right, that they're actually speaking about the same thing. They're actually using um, adjectives for the same word. Right? It's the same word, but they're just using different types of the same word. So for example, when Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Qaf, verse number 38, He says, That Allah created the heavens and the earth and what is between them. And we found no lughub. We experienced no lughub. What is lughub? Some scholars said it is fatigue. Some scholars said it is tiredness. Some scholars said it's exhaustion. And all of them are 
adjectives for the same thing, right? They're all synonyms. They're all referring to the same thing, and they are just simply, um, you know, referring and pointing to the one thing. But it is, it is using similar words. So these four subcategories are what you find in the works of Tafsir. So when you come to any book of Tafsir, especially classical works of Tafsir, and you find varying opinions amongst the, the scholars of Tafsir the majority of them fall into this second category, and that is that the scholars are just simply expressing themselves in different ways. But actually they're referring to the same meaning. And sometimes, yes, it is a contradiction. Sometimes there is no way to reconcile, and therefore it is something which the scholars will then themselves say that this meaning is stronger or that meaning is strong. If you read Ibn Kathir, if you read the Tabari, if you read Al-Qurtubi, they often point to these things, right? When there's a difference of opinion that cannot be reconciled, there is a contradiction, they will say that's stronger or that's weaker or that seems more apparent and so on and so forth. So that's just something which I wanted us to bear in mind, inshallah, because it's going to come a number of times, especially in Surah Al-Falaq, but it's going to come um, you know, throughout the tafsir of the Qur'an as we progress, inshallah ta'ala. So Surah Al-Falaq, chapter number 113. This surah, um, as, I mean, we're not going to go through the introduction again because we covered its introduction at the introduction of Surah Al-Nas. As we said, both of them are considered to be the same. It has a number of names that it's known by. Surah Al-Falaq is its most common name. Right? Um, it is also known in some of the books of Tafsir as Surah Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbi Al-Falaq. Right? And this is very common, by the way, in the works of Tafsir. If, especially classically, before like, you know, we kind of like have names now that we've agreed upon and it's settled upon and that you'll find in the index of the Qur'an. However, in, the, in classical times, in the olden times, it wasn't necessarily the case that everyone had kind of agreed on a set name for the surahs. So something which you'll find very common is that many scholars of tafsir would just simply call it surah and then mention the first verse. Surah tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. Right? Surah Right? And that's how they would just simply refer to it. And it is also known as al Ula. So the two surahs, as we said, Falaq and Nas are known as the Mu'awwidatin, or the Mu'awwidatan, which means there's two surahs that give you refuge and shelter and protection. And this surah by itself is also known as al al Ula. The first of the two mu'awwidatin, the first of the two surahs that give you protection. And its revelation is, as we said in Surah An-Nas, the scholars differed, is it a Makki surah or a Madani surah? So like as with Surah An-Nas, some scholars said it is Makki, meaning revealed before the hijrah. And that's the opinion of Al-Hassan and Ata and Ikrimah. And it's also reported as being one of the two opinions of Ibn Abbas. And Ibn Abbas عنهما, also says that it is a Madani surah in his second opinion. And that's also the opinion of Qatada and others as well. And as we said the, with the introduction of Surah Al-Nas, that, that seems to be the stronger of the two opinions. And Allah Azza knows best that these two surahs, Al-Falaq and Al-Nas, were revealed in the Madani period, meaning post-Hijrah. As we said, Madani Makki refers to pre-Hijrah and post-Hijrah. Um, and that's, uh, that seems to be more apparent and the stronger of the two opinions. And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala knows best. And it's also something which the majority of the scholars of Tafsir seem to um, seem to point towards as well. So Allah Azza wa Jal begins this surah, and as we said, the difference. Both surahs were revealed exactly at the same time? Yes, yeah, so according to like many of the scholars of Tafsir, both surahs were revealed together. Right? And you have certain like hadith that we mentioned <coughs> at the beginning of Surah Al Nas that seem to allude to this as well, right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them both as a cure, and they kind of were revealed at the same time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we said, Surah Al-Nas was a surah in which Allah azza wa jal ordered us and commanded us to seek his refuge and protection and shelter from the hidden dangers, right? from the evils that are hidden and the dangers that we can't see that aren't apparent. And that primarily refers to Iblis and Shaytan and the evil of his whisperings and so on. In Surah Al-Falaq, we have the opposite. And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to seek refuge from what is apparent, from the apparent harm and from the apparent evil and things that we can see and things that we are able to anticipate and to seek Allah's protection from them as well. And as we said before, one of the main differences between the two surahs is that in Surah Al-Falaq we seek refuge in Allah only once. 
But then we seek refuge in Allah from four things, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes into more detail. Starts off very generic from everything, from all the evil that Allah has created. And then he gives specific examples. And some of the scholars of Tafsir said, it's as if it goes up or down in grades. Right? It becomes more specific, more specific, meaning more dangerous, more harmful, more problematic as we go along. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changes in surat, from this from Surah An-Nas. In Surah An-Nas, as we said, we seek refuge in Allah three times. Birabbin nas, malikin nas, ilahin nas, from one evil. And that's because that evil is greater and it is a more harmful danger. And much of the evil that's been referred to in this surah, its essence goes back to the evil mentioned in Surah An-Nas, and that is the evil of shaitan and iblis. So again, we're, and, uh, you know, we're not going to repeat things that we've already covered, right? So, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ right? We did all of that in Surah An-Nas, so to save time. We're not going to go over them again, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the surah by a command again. And as we send that command, you know, means emphasis, to give importance, to show that it's something that we should be constantly doing, you know, to, to bring this to life, to personalize the message. All of this is contained in that command, قُلْ أَعُوذُ I seek refuge, right? Again, to personalize the message, بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقُ I seek refuge and the protection and shelter of the Lord of Al-Falaq. Right? Commonly now it is translated as daybreak. However, the scholars of Tafsir had three different opinions as to the meaning of Al-Falaq. The first of them is daybreak. Right? The first of them is daybreak. And that's the opinion of Jabir radiallahu an, as Ibn Abi Hatim mentions, that Jabir radiallahu an said Al-Falaq means daybreak. Al-Falaq means daybreak. And there is also the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma and the opinion of many of the scholars of the tabi'een like Mujahid and Sa'id ibn Jubair and Al-Hasan al-Basri and Qatada and Muhammad ibn Ka'ab al-Quradi and Zayd ibn Aslam and many, many of the scholars of tafsir held this opinion. And they said that it's similar to other verses in the Quran, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, like in Surah Al-An'am 96, the one who brings daybreak. Right? Allah is referring to himself as the one who brings daybreak. And he calls himself Faliq al-Ishab, right? from the same root word as Falaq. And likewise, in Surah Al-An'am, verse number 95, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Faliq al-Habbi wa the one who brings out the seed and the fruit stone, right? The one who brings out the seed or the plant seed from the plant from the seed and from the, the fruit from its stone. So this is the first opinion amongst the scholars of Tafsir that Al Falaq refers to daybreak. Right? It refers to daybreak. The second opinion amongst the scholars of Tafsir is that it refers to creation. So you're saying, say, oh Allah, say, I seek refuge in the Lord of creation. In the Lord of creation. And this is the opinion of Ibn Abbas. So often you'll find what that Ibn Abbas has more than one opinion, right? Or some of the companions and some of the scholars will give you multiple opinions, right? And that's also, by the way, another reason why the scholars say that the differences of opinion are differences of variation. Not differences of contradiction. Why does Ibn Abbas give multiple tafsir of the same verse? Why is he giving different statements for the same word or the same verse of the Quran? Why, why not just repeat the same thing? Why does he say different things? It's because they're referring to the same thing. He just happened to say different things at different times to different people. Right? So you come and ask me the question, and you ask me, you know, which mosque are you giving your lecture? And I say it's Masjid al Hikmah. Someone asks ask me the same question, I call it wisdom, right? The wisdom mosque, whatever it's called in English, wisdom, Islamic center, whatever they have, whatever it's called, right? And someone ask, um, asks me, a third person, I say, oh, it's the one in Nichols, right? The mosque in Nichols. Assuming there would only be one, there isn't only one, but just, we just assume that there's one mosque in Nichols. Someone asks ask me, a fourth person, I say, it's on Aston Church Road, the masjid on Aston Church Road. Each time someone asks me, I gave them a different answer, but I'm referring to the same thing. So when the scholars of tafsir, when they went through the statements of Ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud and so on, and they found that this was very common, that these scholars, these amazing companions of Qur'an and tafsir, they would give multiple opinions for the same verse and the same word, 
they realize that they're not contradicting themselves. What they're doing is they're giving various or variations of the same answer. Right? They're explaining themselves in different ways. So the second opinion, as we said, is that it refers to creation. And this was the opinion of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, and also the opinion of one of the scholars by the name of Al-Dahak. Right? And Al-Dahak is from the scholars of the Tabi'een, from the students of the companions, and from the lesser uh, generation of the Tabi'een, meaning from the younger generation of the Tabi'een. And he, um, it is said that he, that he uh, heard from some of the companions like Ibn Abbas and Anas, uh, Ibn Malik and so on, even though there is a difference of opinion as to whether or not he, he actually met Ibn Abbas or not. But anyway, he, spoke, he, he, he um, studied from a number of the, or he heard from a number of the companions. And in return, or in turn, he also studied with a number of the scholars of the Tabi'een, like Sayyid ibn Jubayr, and Ata, and Al-Aswad, and Tawus, and so on. And he passed away in the year 102. Right? So he's one of the early scholars of Tafsir. So this was also his opinion. Al-Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that it refers to anything, anything that... So the word falaq, right, in the Arabic language, refers to something which comes from something else, something which breaks away from something else, right? So the day break comes from night, right? And that's what the opinion is of uh, Imam al-Shawkani. He said that some of the scholars said that it's anything that refers to being breaking away from something else, right? So from the seed, you have the plant that breaks from the seed, right? Or from a, a, a stone, you have a fruit that breaks from the fruit stone. Or you have, for example, the child that comes from the womb, right? breaks away from the womb. Anything that comes out from something else, all of them can be contained linguistically in the meaning of al-falaq. Right? So this is what Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah said. And he said, and he attributed this opinion to al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala. That this is what al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala said. And that's why the opinion of creation, the second opinion of Ibn Abbas, this is what it's referring to. And Allah knows best. It's referring to not just the daybreak, but all of the various variations within the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where something comes from something else, where something breaks away from something else. And Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he also mentioned this as well. So plants that break away from seeds, animals that come from their parents, children that come from their womb, from the wombs of their mothers. Anything that comes from something else, and likewise, therefore, the night that breaks away from the day, or the day that breaks away from the night, all of this, he said, is being referred to in the word of al-Falaq. And Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, he also supported this in his tafsir of this verse. So Ibn Taymiyyah also said the same thing, and others from amongst the scholars of tafsir. So the first opinion is what? That it was? Daybreak. Daybreak. And the second opinion is? That it's creation. The third opinion is that it refers to Jahannam. How far? No, it's the third opinion because that opinion, as we said, comes under creation. Right? So it's all part of creation. Whether you say creation or whether you give different examples of that creation, right? So like animals or birds or fruit or whatever, it's still referring to creation. The third opinion is that it refers to Jahannam. How far? Right? And exactly what and how far, the, the, even those scholars amongst themselves, they differ. So Ka'b al-Ahbar, he said that it refers to a house that Allah has prepared in Hawfaya. So you seek refuge in Allah, the Lord of the Hawfaya. Right? He said that it refers specifically to a house in Jahannam. Abdullah ibn Umar, radiallahu anhuma, it's reported that he said that it refers to a tree in the Hawfaya. Shajaratun fin nar. Right? And others from amongst them said that it refers to a valley in the fire of hell. Right? A valley in the fire of hell. And others said that it refers to a, a vessel or a pot in the fire of hell that is covered. When it is opened, the fire comes out of that pot and it is extremely hot. Right? It is extremely hot. And this is the opinion of a suddi, right? that it's some kind of a pot or that it's some kind of valley in the fire of, of Jahannam. And this was the opinion of Imam al-Suddi. And Imam al-Suddi is also from the, um, the tabi'een, from the students of 
uh, of some of the companions like Anas ibn Malik and others and he was born in the year 49 Hijri and he passed away in the year 127 Hijri. Right? So Suddi, Tahad, Qatada, these are names that we should be familiar with. So this is the third opinion right? that refers to something within the fire of hell. And they use as proof of this, by the way, a, a weak hadith. It is a hadith that is rejected. But the, in the hadith it said that the Prophet ﷺ said that al-falaq is a, um, a, a pit in the fire of hell. It is a pit in the fire of hell. But as we said that this is a hadith that is weak and it is not accepted. And some of the other scholars said that it's from the names of Jahannam. Right? So all of them said that it's so it's the name of Jahannam, it's a pit in the fire, it's a tree in the fire, it's a house in the fire. All of that kind of comes back to the same thing that it's referring to, Jahannam or the fire of hell. And Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah, after mentioning all of these opinions, he said, and the strongest of them, the strongest of these opinions is the first opinion. And that is that it is referring to daybreak. Al-Falaq refers to a subh or the daybreak. And this was also seconded by Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari in the Sahih mentions this as well, Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, Al-Imam Al-Shawkani, um, they all mention this, right? they all say that the strongest opinion from these three is that it refers to daybreak. Right? And, this is like, and, and this is what you find the vast majority of the scholars of Tafsir referring to. If you look at it though more carefully and you analyze this based upon what we said in the introduction, right? so when you have these differences of opinion now, so we probably mentioned what, 12 different opinions, right? Like, you know, in terms of like the nuances and the, the finer details, we went through maybe 10, 12 different statements from amongst the scholars, right? And then we kind of like categorized them under three. Daybreak, creation, and how far. But when you analyze this further, what you find also is that actually two opinions are very close and very similar, and one is contradictory, right? So which two are very close? Creation and daybreak, right? Both of them are very close, and that's what Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, and others, they said that it refers to not just daybreak, daybreak is too specific, they said it is anything in the creation of Allah that refers to this, right? And in Adwa'ul Bayan of, of Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah, who's also one of the contemporary scholars of Tafsir, he says, in, or rather his student who finished that book, he says that this seems to be the strongest view, that creation and daybreak are very similar to each other, and they refer to, you know, they can be like kind of categorized into one. Both of them kind of complement one another. As for the third opinion, which is that it is Jahannam, you can't really reconcile. Right? You can't really reconcile between them. They said that seems to be a further opinion, like a far-off opinion, and that seems to be the correct, um, you know, the correct uh, position on this first falaq. It refers to creation or daybreak, and it doesn't refer to Jahannam. Right, it doesn't refer to Jahannam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in this verse, verse number one, commands us to seek refuge in Him as the Lord of all creation. Right? Because what are we going to do? We're going to seek Allah's refuge and protection as the Lord of all creation from what? From the evil of all of His creation. So we ask Allah and we beseech Allah and we ask Allah to give us protection and His divine care and protection and shelter and refuge. All of that from the evil of His creation because He is the Lord of creation. Right? There is no master, no Lord, no one who has full power and authority over everything in the universe except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the word falaq in the Arabic language, as we said, it's something which is therefore clear. Right? Something which breaks away. So the you know the difference in falaq in daybreak is clear. When day comes in, night goes. It's very clear the break between the two. You're not confused as to whether it's day or night. It is very clear, right? When a plant comes from a seed, it's very clear. When a child comes from the womb of its mother, it's very clear, right? And that's why in the Arabic language, the word falaq refers to something which is given clarity, something which is very clear. And that's why in the hadith in the Tirmidhi, when Aisha radiallahu anha described the way that the Prophet ﷺ used to receive revelation. So he would receive revelation in different ways. Right? And one of those ways, for example, was dreams. Right? He would see a dream, and that dream would be a form of revelation. She describes the dream and she said, 
He will not see a dream except that it would be like subh, like the breaking of day, like daybreak. Why? Why daybreak? What does she mean by that? That he wouldn't see a dream except that it would be like daybreak. Meaning that it would be clear and that it would be something which he understood and it's something which would come true. Right? It's something which is very oh, very clear, no confusion. You know, like most of us when you see a dream, you wake up, you don't remember the dream. Or if you remember it, you remember certain aspects, you don't remember other aspects. Or it's confusing, like the whole message of the dream is very confusing. Right? And that's why we know that dreams are of different types. You have dreams that come from shaitan, which are nightmares. And then you have dreams which are from hadith nafs which is just like you're, you know, you're so busy and preoccupied in your mind that when you go to sleep, that stuff carries over in your dreams. So maybe you're stressed at work and then you have a dream about being stressed at work, right? You're stressed about marriage and you get a dream about being stressed in marriage, right? You're stressed about money, you get a dream about it. So it's kind of like carrying on. It's called hadith nafs right? Your soul just carries on into overdrive after you go to sleep. And then you have dreams that are good news, right? Dreams that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from the signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah, as the Prophet told us وسلم, is that the believers will see a dream and those dreams will come true. And the Prophet said, and the ones who are most likely to have dreams that come true are the ones of, from amongst them who are most truthful in speech. The ones who are most truthful in speech are the ones most likely to see dreams that will come true. Right? And as we know, the, the prophets of Allah, they used to see, receive dreams right? as, as part of their wahi and part of their revelation. So Ibrahim salam in the Quran, Allah mentions when he's commanded to slaughter his son Ismail, where does that commandment come from? A dream. Ya buniya inni ara fil manami anni adbahuka fandur madha tara. Oh my son, I see in my dream that I should slaughter you. So what do you think? He said, Oh my father, do as you have been commanded. Because that dream is a revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As opposed to us, me and you, when we receive a dream, even if it comes true, it's not revelation. Right? You can't base, you know, based upon your dreams, it's not a it's not a revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not for you to make something halal or haram. For the for the prophets of Allah, it is different. Right? Another example of this is in the story of Yusuf alayhi salam. Right at the very beginning, what does he say? إِنِّي رَأَيْتُ أَحَدَ عَشَرَ كَوْكَبًا وَالشَّمْسَ وَالْقَمَرَ رَأَيْتُهُمْ لِسَاجِدِينَ He says to his father, Ya'qub alayhi salam, O oh my father, I saw 11 stars, the sun and the moon, all of them prostrating before me. قَالَ يَا بُنِيَّ لَا تَقْصُصُ رُؤْيَاكَ O my son, don't mention this dream to anyone. But later on it would come true. Right at the end of the surah he says, This is the interpretation of my dream that Allah caused to be true. When Yaqub and his wife and his brothers, all of them come and they prostrate before Yusuf So Aisha is describing the Prophet's dreams and its revelation and she calls it right? And that's why many of the scholars or the majority of the scholars of tafsir when they specified it to mean daybreak, they have all of these different, um, you know, like supporting evidences that they use to show that it means daybreak, right? But as we said, if we went for the more generic meaning of it meaning creation, then that's something which, inshallah, is also something which the Sunnah and the, and the Quran generally supports, and it is the opinion, as we said, of many of the scholars of tafsir, including Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Okay, I think we'll, we'll stop there for today, inshallah. Uh, and then next week we'll go on to verse number two. Wait, before you start, you have a question? Let me do this one because I forget. Right. So, um, in when is this? Two weeks? In two weeks' time, on December 7th to 9th, we have another Al Maghrib course coming. Can you see this? Right. So, uh, this time, protect this house by Sheikh Abu Isa, Ni'matullah. He's coming, inshallah, to Birmingham the weekend of 7th to 9th, and it's being held at the University of Birmingham. So for those of you, I think most of you know who Sheikh Abu Isa is. For those of you who don't know, when we started QP, um, he came for the first session. He helped me to do the introduction and to kickstart this program. Um, and he's coming back. Has he, I think he has. It is, he's not, has he done this? Sorry? This course was six years ago. Oh, this, okay. So he did this course like six years ago. 
But I'm sure in six years he's increased in wisdom and, and knowledge and, and many other things. Um, so, inshallah, he's going to uh, be delivering this course again. From what I've heard, it's an amazing course. Like, I haven't attended this course, but from what I've heard from everyone that I've spoken to that's been, it is an amazing course. What is it on? It's about everything to do with family relationships, right? Parents, children, in-laws, teenagers, the whole, like, dynamics of a family. And honestly, it is one of the most important and one of the most stressful topics that you, that everyone really needs to know, right? The amount of people that come up to me and have problems, you know, in-law problems, spousal problems, children problems, you know, like your children are young, then they're going into teenagers, and all sorts of dramas that go on in terms of just that family unit and how to deal with it, not just based upon knowledge from the Qur'an and Sunnah, but real-life experience that the Sharia gives to us and tells us to you know, live it in a practical way that is realistic based upon the statements of the scholars and all of that stuff that we have within our Sharia. I think that it's something which is amazing, um, and it's something which I would highly recommend. So this course, I think, is also going to London, and it's already sold out. Right? It's already, like they already have 400 odd people, and it's sold out. Right? Kaka's telling me all this stuff. Uh, and, and it's coming to Birmingham the weekend after. Right? So in two weeks' time. And you know, inshallah, I'm sure that it's going to be like a, a sold out class here as well. So I would highly recommend if you go to... Where do they need to go, man, for this? Speak to you. Qfaws.org, Q-F-A-W-Z.org, inshallah, for more details. Um, and, you know, if you want to just a taster, like it's a free Friday night on the 7th, so you can just turn up, don't have to pay anything, sit there for two, three hours, and then pay afterwards. <laughs> so, inshallah, that's, that's something which I would highly recommend. And I think you have a breakout room, right? For, uh, sorry, a, a, a mother-toddler room. So for sisters as well, you take the whole family along. Just take everyone. Take the kids. Take everyone. Make it a weekend out, inshallah. And um, that would be good. Okay. You had a question? Yes. Okay. So uh, the question is that we can't get revelation, but we can get ilham. Ilham loosely translated as inspiration. Right? And yes, that's true. You can get ilham. So it's mentioned, like, you know, we know from the Sunnah Umar radiallahu was mulham, right? He was someone who was inspired. He would often um, have, and not necessarily from dreams, by the way, inspiration, not necessarily from dreams, from just that source of, in your heart, you have that strong conviction, and, and so on. That's something which is very possible, right? To have ilham, and it's something which Allah Azza wa mentions in the Quran, you know, the mother of Musa, alayhi salam, is inspired to place him in the river, all of those things that are inspiration. It's not revelation. The difference is revelation comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala via an angel or some kind of direct form. Inspiration isn't something that you can claim to be from Allah, but it's a feeling that you have that it's the right thing to do. And that's why the Prophet recommended that we pray Salatul Istikhara. When you want to make a decision, you ask Allah to guide you in what is right in that decision. And then that feeling that you have in your heart that you want to go one way or another, that is you know, a type of inspiration that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives. Right? It is something which you have a feeling that you feel that this, this option or the option is better for you in that regard and Allah Azza wa knows best. Any questions? Okay. Yeah. So the question is regarding, last week we spoke about the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ told us that shaitan, when we go to sleep, ties three knots upon us. The first knot is entied when you wake up and you mention, remember Allah's name. The second one when you make wudu. The third one when you pray fajr. So that seems to, the hadith seems to be very specific to the fajr time. right? And the fajr, the, the whole process of waking up for fajr and praying salatul fajr. So if, and the, the hadith says that if you do that, you wake up and you're energetic. Otherwise, you oversleep and you wake up lazy. So the point is that once you've missed Fajr, Shaitan has achieved his goal. Right? So if you miss Fajr, so to do it later, for example, you know, you oversleep over Fajr and then you wake up in the morning or for example, you remember during the day sometime, that's Shaitan having achieved his objective. So the hadith and Allah knows best seems to be very specific. Right? But other du'as that you have, like the general adhkar of the morning and so on, that's obviously something which is more open that you can read later on as well. But this specific hadith seems to be about this, you know, like particular issue of 
um, you know, of, of making the dhikr when you wake up in the morning before Fajr is part of that process of getting ready for Fajr. And Allah knows best. Do you have anything online? Yep. Right. One question online. Um, someone's asking, uh, you mentioned um, Imam Chakani, his position uh, that it refers to anything um, regards anything that breaks away from something else. Yeah. You then, I think you mentioned his name again at the end for those who support position one, which is daybreak. Yeah. Someone just saying, did he have two positions? No, so his, his, he mentions that position. So the position of, it, of being anything that breaks away from something else, that's something which Imam al-Shawkani mentions in his tafsir. But himself, he chose the first opinion. He said, and that seems to be the stronger opinion of tafsir. But as we said, both of them are, you know, on, on close analysis, both of them seem to be very similar anyway. They seem to complement one another. So I don't necessarily think that that's like, um, you know, like a, a contradiction in terms. Um, it's just that one group of scholars has specified it more and they have their reasons because as we mentioned the, the hadith in, the hadith in the sunnah and the, some of the verses in the Quran seem to make it very specific and other scholars wanted to make it more generic right? and wanted to keep it more generic and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best Did you say in some previous lessons that and if so um, what are the benefits of that so the, um, from the sunnahs of the Prophet ﷺ is that he would read Surah Ikhlas, Falaq and Nas after every congregation, after every obligatory prayer. Right? So Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib and Isha. Um, I don't remember the specific hadith now if it mentions like a, a virtue for that. But generally like those are three uh, surahs in the sunnah, generally they ward off from evil. Right? That's what they're generally mentioned for. So. Some people do it so it's mentioned for, for more, more than one place. So for example, Sheikh bin Baz ta'ala, used to say that you read these surahs after every obligatory prayer and after Fajr and Maghrib three times. Right? And that's part of your morning and evening adhkar as well. Right? So to read them three times, Fajr and Maghrib. And then before you go to sleep, it's reported in the sunnah that before you go to sleep that you read these as well. So it's mentioned on multiple occasions. So what is the timings of these um, um, morning and evening adhkar? So what's the timing of the morning and evening adhkar? Uh, morning adhkar after fajr. So anytime after fajr, like, I, you know, it's recommended to read them after fajr. So when the... Uh, like the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would pray Fajr and sit in his musalla all the way till the sunrise, right? That's something which the Prophet ﷺ would regularly do, and he would make his adhkar, right? So that's one time to do it. But if you can't do it then, you know, even in the morning, driving to work, you know, around doing the school run, whatever it is that you do, making those adhkar, it's something which is recommended. And likewise, the evening. In the evening, before Maghrib or after Maghrib, right? So as the evening is setting in, because the evening in, in Islam is judged by Maghrib, even though it's relatively early now. Right, like four o'clock and it's like evening already. But before Maghrib or after Maghrib. Right, that's from your evening adhkar. So one more question. Um, previously you said um, the stronger opinion is to say Bismillah before you eat rather than Bismillah rahman rahim But what about these other um, was that, you know, the longer it was they can get in books, are they authentic? Yes, yeah, so if, I mean, if, all, if you go to an authentic book of du'as, then the du'as that you find, inshallah, will be authentic. So the one that I would recommend is going to be the Fortress of the Muslim, which is widely available, easily downloadable, you know, like they have, I don't know how many versions and how many pocket-sized versions and so on. It's very easy to get. And in fact, you can get it on your phone as well. You can actually get an app for this stuff now. So. But it's something which I would recommend, like seriously, like to not only to read, but to read with the children as well, out loud get them in that habit of making it. They won't memorize it, they'll follow you and so on, but after a while it just becomes very easy. Right? And it's something which just becomes part of your daily routine when you wake up in the evening. It just takes you five, ten minutes to do, but it's something which is, which is very powerful. When you're setting the ma'awad al-tayn for shifa, do you do so once each or thrice each? Um, and do you do so in your hand and then dry spit and wipe Okay, so how do you do uh, ruqya with the mu'awidatin? Actually, we're going to mention this in one of the the, less, the coming lessons. One of the verses in Surah Al-Falaq will speak about this in more detail. Um, whether you do it once or three times, you know, like once is the minimum, but do it three times is better. Um, and then the Prophet used to blow in his hands. How he would blow 
that's like it says he just used to blow in his hands and then he would wipe over his body right um, but we'll speak about this when we come to the verse when Mishrul how to blow and so on and what the scholars said concerning um, the differences between what's mentioned in the verse and between doing a ruqya that is Islamically acceptable. Inshallah. Okay, so the question is, last week we mentioned that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala omits a verb in a verse to make it more eloquent and to emphasize the, the strength of, for example, the commandment or the prohibition. How is the reader meant to know? In the Arabic language, it would be very clear, and it's, it's known through the context of the verses. So in the verse, for example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Haram for you are your mothers and your daughters and so on, read in the context of the verse, and the verse before it, you will understand that it's speaking about marriage. Because the verse before it begins, Do not marry the women that your fathers have married. So it starts off with marriage and then it just goes on from there. So it's about the context and reading the verses and so on. And remember, as we always say in tafsir, you know, like never read verses of tafsir in isolation. Try to read the verses before it and after it so that you have an understanding of the context of those verses of the Quran. Okay, Jazakumullah khair, insha'Allah, and I will see you next week. Sallallahu alayhi wa Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi